You are listening to the Talking Tough Podcast, the world's toughest men and women at their most vulnerable. Their stories of triumph, their falls from grace, and their climb back to the top, to life. This is Rick Bassman here for Talking Tough on the Podcast One Network. We are here today live on Maui, as we are for all of these editions of Talking Tough, but this is the first, as I mentioned in the uh, brief intro, first ever homegrown Maui guest and my neighbor, <laughs> Phil Swantek. Hello, folks. <laughs> and uh, how you doing? Man? I'm doing great. Good, good. And we both uh, have copies of your book, which I told the audience about. We do. There we go, which you can get on Amazon. We'll talk more about that yeah. later. Uh, but uh, let's um, let's dive in. So you've written this incredibly wild, cool book called The Marijuanistas of Maui. And you've been on Maui for 40 years now, is that right? <laughs> no, I hate to admit it, 48 years. 48 years, wow. <laughs> okay, so you're one, you're one of the OGs for sure. No, no doubt about it. And so one thing I love to get into right away is you've been here for 48 years. You know, you're, you're actually wearing long pants today. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Uh, you live the Maui lifestyle, there's no doubt about it. You were absolutely one of the pioneers of the, the marijuana trade here. I might say some things wrong, so correct me if I do. No. Mm-hmm. So right away, they're looking at this guy. He's been here for 48 years. He's wearing his Aloha shirt. He's a pot guy. So they're probably going to think this guy's an old burnout. Where do you come from, man? You're, you're not an old burnout. You went to a school some of us have uh, heard of before. Uh, I think we all get a little burnout as we age, but... Uh... No, I went to um, high school in Honolulu and graduated from the prestigious um, Puno School. Uh, Barack Obama's alma mater. Uh, and, uh, then uh, went to Yale University. Yale, so not, right away, not what people would expect, I'm sure. So how does a guy, well, first of all, Barack Obama's alma mater, I thought he was born in a different country. He actually went to school. <laughs> we, get into we, that we have it on the highest authority that he yeah. was, in fact, born in. You helped him manufacture his birth certificate <laughs> and all of that. Yes. I mean, we know better. Yeah, we, I know we know better. You know I'm kidding about that. Yeah. I think we're both on the same side yeah. of that fence. But um, so in any case, how do you go from Yale University back to Maui and, and living the lifestyle that you chose for yourself? Well, I ask myself that often. And um, now with the pandemic raging and the rise of uh, Trumpism, I feel that being here on Maui kind of has validated all the choices we made many years ago. I mean, I used to wonder, I said, God, maybe I could have made it big on Broadway or, you know, maybe I should be the governor or something. Why did I keep choosing Maui? And now it seems like a validation, like I say, of all those choices, because here we are. Another beautiful day, mm-hmm. going down to the beach after this, it's 82 degrees. There's a small uh, north swell. The beach is littered with bikinied women, and you practically stumble over them. I mean, we're in paradise. You, you did not make a horrible choice. <laughs> no. And so you no, mentioned no. a few minutes ago with the pandemic raging, raging, it validated your choice. Before the pandemic, would you still have felt that same way? Um, <clears throat> in a way, no, because um, Maui has gotten so crowded, or was, that it really, I thought, was hard to move on. It bore so little resemblance to the Maui that I loved and remembered and the reason I came here in the first place. I fled Oahu 
in 73 because it was too crowded. In 73? The spots were too crowded. The traffic was too much. Have you been there lately? Three years ago, I went to a high school reunion, and um, it was like um, going to Dubai or Hong Kong. I was there I mean, a few months ago. It was mass. weird. It's I was mass. actually disoriented and actually, even for a moment, lost. I actually had to reorient myself. <laughs> Which way? Where's the ocean? Where, from where you grew up. That yeah. was much of a radical change. Right. And, and you feel Maui was going in the same direction, and I guess potentially could, but things return to well, whatever normal means these days. Well, we're. You know, during the height of the first uh, wave of the pandemic, I felt we were back in the 70s, and it was wonderful. I mean, go down to the beach, there'd be three or four people, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and um, it was just delightful. Then it was like the 80s, you know, that was acceptable, but then it's, well, it's more like the 90s, you know, I feel, you know, that the press of people and traffic again, so... So how do you how do you deal with that going forward? You are one of the very original people here. You read your book and you get such an evocative, so evocative, mm -hmm. the, the feeling that it gives you the feeling of what Maui must have been like in those times. And I, I read it going, wow, I, I feel like I'm there when I'm reading the book, of course. And I wish I could be there. But we can't. Those, those times are gone. So how, how do you reconcile that? You just you keep doing what you do? Do you put it aside? Or do you look for somewhere else to go? Uh, <clears throat> I don't know the answer, and I think it's a question a lot of the old-timers are, are asking themselves. Um, I think my motivation in many ways for writing this book was really, I mean, I, I'm an amateur historian. I was an American studies major at Yale, and I always felt that the really interesting stories in American life are what I would call the social life. What was really going on with the people, not the battles and the elections and, you know, the treaties, but uh, the life of society. And so um, I've always been interested in history. And I think <clears throat> for me, writing um, this book was really, um, well, I call it the Maryland Easters of Maui, a sojourn, which means, you know, a brief, uh, the narrator spends about a year on Maui. But I wanted to just um, celebrate a certain historical epic. What was Maui really like? Because so many people don't even know. I mean, people say, well, I've been here 10 years. And I go, well, okay, that means you're a newcomer. Right. You know, so sure. I've been here 20 years. Oh, you just got here then. <clears throat> you know? right. So I wanted people to understand that bit of um, Hawaii and Maui. And also, maybe just as importantly, the... Um, what uh, the marijuana industry was like back then. And I wanted to <clears throat> celebrate the people who created the industry. I mean, now you can go and, well, I don't know about here, but if you're in Boulder, you could just go down to the store and buy whatever you wanted. <clears throat> right, these days you're talking about, yes, yeah. of course. And it's um, obviously it's a lot more, I guess the word accepted here now. You can get marijuana pretty easily. Yeah. You know, the laws are what they are. Yeah. Back then, and, and I want to mention it, I thought you did a great job in setting up how it felt, the characters, what the people were like. And it was almost like the book was history, as you said. But then you insert the story of the marijuana trip, which is really fascinating. And it could, it could be a movie. It could be fictional, but I know it's not. So, well, yes, it's fictional. Right. It says right here that these are fictitious characters. 
Yeah, well, you got statute of limitations and all. <laughs> yeah, we can cut any of this out. Yeah, no, no, it's all cool. So I've said it before. I'll say it again. I have no problem with that. But um, let me interrupt you. I'm sorry. Sure, so, no, so we alluded to something. Maybe you wouldn't want to get out there in the public. What? Out of order. What's one of the craziest stories that you can remember from your time in the marijuana trade? Oh. I know you have lots of them, but just give us one. I'll outrage everybody, it please, if you story. Well, of course, I would urge everyone to buy the book and read a lot of crazy stories. Of course. Um, well, let me, um, <clears throat> I will answer your question, but let me quote myself. I'll read from the back of the book. Great. Many years before marijuana was legalized, industrialized, homogenized, and regulated, Party visionaries grew their plants in the wilderness of Hawaii. Outlaws by definition, they defied law enforcement, politicians, thugs, violent nature, and a powerful criminal syndicate to create the nascent domestic marijuana industry. In this picaresque story of love and money set in the 1980s, two Yaleys and their friends attempt to harvest their crop and convey it to their broker in New York. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Nothing I could even imagine. <laughs> sure, it's a hell of a setup. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, crazy things. Well, it, it, you know, in, in writing this, <clears throat> I'll say, although it's a work of fiction, uh, it is close to the bone of truth. You know, oh, so has historical context. Yeah, I didn't have to stretch my imagination very far, let us say, to to write about the incidents in this book. Craziest thing. Well, I think the craziest thing actually happened in New York. And uh, fans will be able to read about it. But um, friends of mine um, lived in the Fireboat House, which was on the East River up around the, the 90s, if you know, in New York. Um, the uh, Fireboat House was built in the, I think, the 1890s. It was sort of a, a, a fireboats ranged up and down the East River in the Hudson as the first line of defense against any fire in the city, and they would spray the, the fires. But, these um, fireboats needed a, a, a base. And so the fireboat house was um, constructed as a kitchen, bunker, you know, sort of headquarters for the fireboats. Friends of mine uh, who were world-class kayakers, as it turned out, um, got um, a grant to restore the fireboat house, which they were doing. The fireboat house was located opposite um, a treacherous set of rapids called Hell's Gate. Again, if you know New York, you know where Hell's Gate is. I think most people do not know New York has well, rapids yeah, at all. It's a confluence right. of, uh, of tides and rivers that would produce huge standing waves. So perfect for my friends. The most interesting thing was that <clears throat> the Fireboat House was located right below the Gracie Mansion, which was the mayor's official residence. Mm -hmm. So when my friends needed to compete in Europe, uh, they needed someone to look after to babysit the fireboat house. So I volunteered okay. and uh, moved my uh, <laughs> my marijuana business into the fireboat house under the protection of the New York Police Department. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. <laughs> All right. Did the New York Police Department actually know what you were doing there? Oh, heavens no. But we are I'm good friends with the... Uh, the good Irish cops. Yes, you're right. not going to get invaded by uh, criminal syndicates in any case. Oh, no. 
Yeah. You must have gone there from Yale, is that right? Well, <clears throat> no, I mean, I, I, uh, I hung out in New York a lot when I was going to Yale. Mm -hmm. It was 70 miles away, and you could take a train in. So I got to know New York um, at a very relatively young age. And uh, it was a crazy place back then, you know, in the, in the late 60s. Drinking age was 18. You so could, I've heard, yes. You know, um, you could see great bands and little dives. What's one of the best bands that we've heard of that you saw in a little bit? The Rolling Stones. Wow. <laughs> well, where, where'd you see them? Uh, how many people were there? Side, I don't know. There were a couple dozen of us. That's but, really but cool. But I saw Buddy Guy. I mean, I saw everybody. That's um, awesome. I mean, I, um, I had friends, you know, that I dealt with who, who owned clubs, like Sounds Brazil. Was a China Club around yet at that time? Through what? Was a China Club around yet in New York at that time? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. They came from a guy named Danny Bennett came from New York where he started the China Club and opened in Los Angeles. Yeah, Terry played there. Sorry? Our friend Terry. Okay. Person. Okay. Yeah. So there was 600 capacity in this club. Downstairs was a 200 capacity and they had a stage there. Tuesday nights were... Madonna, Elton John, um, Rod Stewart, Tom Petty. You'd never, Joni Mitchell. You'd never know who's going to show up and get on stage in front of 200 people. So it sounds like you saw a lot of the same sort of setup where you were. Oh, yeah. And then I was, was, was treated very well, too, by the uh, club owners. So well, you, was, you had <coughs> the setup, certainly. So, Phil, you're, you're on Maui now. I know you live a really quiet, you live a Hawaiian lifestyle. Do you, do you miss the craziness at all? Um, yeah, a little bit, actually, because um, I, I just, I love New York. It's always been a second home to me. And just the frisson, the energy, the, the creativity of the place. I mean, when I go there on business, it would drive me crazy. It's like, okay, when my tan started to seriously fade, mm -hmm. time to go. Time, okay, that's a barometer. That's when yeah. you know it's time yeah. to go. It was but yeah, there was a lot of, you know, a lot just, yeah, it was fantastic. And, when you live on Maui, especially in those days, it was a much smaller community, um, which was good and bad. I mean, you go to, you know, go down to Casanova and you knew everybody, mm -hmm. or you go to the beach and know everybody. And now you, I don't sometimes know a soul. Is that right? Even here at home? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It has changed that much. But what I liked about New York was that you could be um, sort of a, a detached atom, you know, not in any molecular family structure. You, know, you could just meet people and wing it. So when the marijuana uses of Maui takes off, do you see going back to that type of lifestyle at all? Will you go to the big cities and, and do appearances and sign your book and do readings or are you? Well, the, the pandemic delayed my plans considerably. I was going to, to go last summer to um, do a book tour. Okay. Uh, a good friend of mine is a former uh, city councilman in, in Boulder, instrumental in, in writing the laws for both Boulder and state. Mm -hmm. So. I was you know, going to go and do readings and signings and have a good time. Um, but now, maybe next summer, All right. coming right up. And how do we keep up with those plans as they evolve? <laughs> I, I, I know you're not Mr. Social Media, the, the antithesis. No, of. I hate Facebook. And I, 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 I have a woman who's helping me promote the book, and she signed me up on Facebook. So okay. I dutifully, every couple of weeks, go onto Facebook, and it's worse than I thought. <laughs> it's a I said, world I said as soon as I see a picture of somebody's kittens, that's it. I'm never going, well, we're going to wait. Yes, the pictures of Muggsy and Mango. And I went, oh, come on. 
This might explain why you have not accepted my friend request that's been sitting there for months oh, now. Oh, no kitten, just but puppies. That's all right. That's all right. Well, I'm going to I'm going to say this now. I want to get out in front of it that when you do get your book tour booked, people are going to have to know about it. So Phil's going to have a Facebook that you guys would be able to find him on when that time comes. Yeah, that's right. I'm on the Facebook. <laughs> no Facebook. That's <which> great. <laughs> If you if you watch that movie uh, that shows how the Facebook was born, they go. Oh, so Schmuckerberg could get laid. I mean, that was he, the basis. He, well, Facebook. it was a good plan, wasn't it? It was. It was I hope plan. it worked out for him. I, I think. Well, it probably <laughs> did for a while. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. He's got the one wife now. It's a question. Yeah. But hey, that's that's his deal, right? It was called the Facebook, though. That's yeah. funny. All right, uh, we have a visit from Wilson, who is now going away. Thank you, Wilson. Fine. So, Phil, the. I want to ask about some of the things that are alluded to in the back cover of mm -hmm. the marijuana system. You talk, you allude to a criminal syndicate. Yeah. What um, the, these two fictional characters from Yale would mm -hmm. come over and get entangled with or avoid variably the criminal syndicate. Mm -hmm. What was that like in the 1970s here on, on Maui? Well, <clears throat> it was um, dodgy. I mean, it you know, you always felt that you were risking a lot. I mean, and, and that is one reason I wanted to write the book. I, I wanted people to know that now they can go to a store and buy pot, but uh, back in the day, the pioneers took huge risks to bring their crop to fruition. I mean, you know, rip-offs, gunplay. Um, I, I mean, it, it, I'll go into it in the book, but- Yeah, um, it's, all, it's all there. It, it wasn't, um, it felt, um, physically dangerous often, not just from banditos who might stick you up, but, you know, you just, you, the law was not on your side, you know? And so um, there was always that kind of overhanging. And then the, the fierce paranoia surrounding green harvest, which was the annual attack by the authorities on the pot uh, crop. Oh, no kidding. Okay. You, oh, you did write about that. Yes, of course. No, began, the, we began the book with... Yes, I read it some time ago. My yeah, apologies. Yeah, I mean, need to do a fresh... And I love the book, by the way. Mm -hmm. Folks, <laughs> please do take a look when you have your chance. You're like Trump. you got to hold it right. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll do my... The hold your Bible correct. Right. There you go. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so there, there were a lot of forces you had to contend with. And were they all... Were they all native? Oh, you mean locals? Locals, yes. Oh, no. You know, you know but um, the, uh, the helicopter attack was truly unnerving, you know, because um, they have like a phalanx of maybe six helicopters out at a time. These are like Hueys, you know, like no, army no. helicopters. All right. And you, you, it, the noise was sometimes disorienting and, and uh, crazy to be out there. Sometimes we'd literally be out harvesting, or the characters would be harvesting when uh, when they would attack, and you'd be dodging helicopters trying to, you know, cut your plants down and run away with them, all literally under the gun. And this is government we're talking about, yeah. All right, and so they'd they'd be flying over, yeah. fictionally speaking, of course. Yeah. And what's what's their goal? What are they trying to accomplish? Well, to steal the pot. Basically, all right. Yeah, I mean, I watched them do it. So they were, they have been successful in that operation. Incredibly, I mean, they made a lot of money. 
um, the sort of unspoken trade-off, I think, was that, well, we won't arrest you, and you won't shoot at us if we steal your car. So I think that was a, a fair. The unspoken agreement. Yeah, kind okay. of the unspoken agreement. I think things changed a little. Again, this is in the book when the feds got involved uh, more heavily. You know, there was pressure from Washington during the so-called drug wars. You know, and they could have been concentrating on crack instead. You know, they, they came out here. So there were the intervention of the feds uh, along with the, the local police. So all these agencies, you know, it's like uh, trying to get in on it, basically. So you had a lot of competition. You did all the work and then you had competitors for your product, it sounds like. Yeah. And not the ones you were looking for, necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. So people want to know, what what is the, what are the laws and what is the overall situation? I don't know. <laughs> nobody, nobody seems to know, do they? Nobody you know, I, I wanted to sound like a smart uh, host here <laughs> and, and pretend like I knew and throw the question to you. So I can go, yep, yep. I don't know either. Oh, I know. you can have, you can do it legally. You can go down and get your, you know, we all have aches and pains, and so you pay your one twenty-five and get your license, right. um, which I have, but uh, it certainly is. Um, Ironic, you know, to be tagging these plants in your backyard, but I'm glad it's evolved that way. I mean, I think maybe now um, with a new administration, we might see a push toward uh, decriminalization on, uh, you know, in the country. And you support that, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Historically, pot has been used as a tool to oppress people of color. I mean, the whole, the whole. I don't know if you've ever seen a great movie, Reefer Madness. <laughs> if you haven't seen Reefer Madness, it's a must-see. You got it. <laughs> it's a must-see. It's un un unbelievable. I think now that that actually was taken seriously. Back. Well, but, I mean, it's also incredibly great propaganda. It, I mean, you can see why people who didn't know what would, you know, be horrified by these crazy people. <laughs> yes. Yeah, oh, the one guy, oh, it's so funny. It should be viewed every 10 years, I think. Yeah, essentially, I mean, it'd be hard to synopsize that movie, but for people, for younger people who mm -hmm. are watching, you know, what in the world is Reefer Madness? Would it, do you think it'd be fair to say it's about you? You smoke this horribly nefarious drug called pot, and you're going to end up being a on a murderous rampage, or a sex maniac, even worse, or for that, yes, <laughs> right. yeah, murderous rampage in America would be okay. Sex yeah, maniac, yeah, maybe not so much. Right? That's in our uh, DNA. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Oh man. Um, so the book is available on Amazon right now. I believe so. I believe so. I, I haven't checked lately, but you can always um, buy it from me. <laughs> and how would how uh, would somebody buy? It? Well, they can get autographed copy though. Yeah, they can. Uh, PO Box five nine four, Makawao, Maui, Hawaii nine six seven six eight. Okay, and we'll add that to the crawl. Sure. Here. Yeah. Yeah. Send me some dough, and I'll send you a book. What do you what do you uh, charge for the book? A bargain of twenty bucks. That's perfect, and, <laughs> and you personally autograph it as well. Absolutely. All right, great. And I, I do have to know it is available on Amazon. I checked before this. Oh, good. Okay. So now you know you can get your book on Amazon if you run out of copies. Yeah. <laughs> right there you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, you know, I got into. I want to point out one thing that, that I think be obvious to anybody, but um, once you read the book, but the narrator of the book is not from Hawaii. Yes. And I very, uh, it was a very conscious choice because um, 
I'm tired of Hawaii books that have obligatory pigeon mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, people have to establish their local credentials. Yes. Um, I wanted to have the narrator looking at Maui and Hawaii completely fresh. I, sorry to interrupt, I thought your narrator throughout expressed a sense of wonderment. Yeah. Being on the, this exotic locale. And to me, that was really cool. I thought that was a great way to let people in to yeah. what it must have been like back then. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So the narrator is, um, well, you know, you know the story, but the narrator is from Connecticut and he's, uh, goes, Will, the main protagonist, and he go back to college days. And when Sam experiences a heartache and a broken relationship, he comes out to visit his friend in Maui, who's a pot grower. So he becomes enlisted in this uh, enterprise as a uh, utter newbie to the island. Mm -hmm. So everything, the women, the music, the vegetation, the ocean, they're all, um, he's, he's struck by, by it all. Yeah, and I think the reader will get that too. I yeah. thought it was a great way to introduce, not, not only introduce Maui, but to really give somebody the feel of what it was like. Yeah. That, that was really cool. Yeah, and of course, it was a very, very different place, you know. When I, I actually came to Maui um, in 73, I had $300, and that was it. Um, a very attractive woman invited me to come over. Um, she had a place to stay. She was living with two other very attractive women. So the good story. And, and so I said, sure. And she took me to Baldwin Beach uh, right off the bat. Mm -hmm. and there was not a soul on the beach. It was stunningly beautiful. And at that moment, I said, I'm signing up for everything. Girl, house, beach. I'm, I'm committed to Maori. But there was not, there were hardly any jobs. This place was deeply depressed then. It really hadn't come out of the, the boom times of World War II. Yeah, I can't even imagine what would have been available, especially to somebody who was not from here at that time. Yeah. So, I mean, in a way, that was why marijuana growing took off. A lot of young people with energy and um, you know, nothing much to they do. They needed something to do. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I came, I had I, my $300, bought a uh, $200 Dodge Army <laughs> surplus. I um, spent $50 on a rifle, an old Enfield 303. Okay. Um, the remaining 50 bucks was ammo, gas, and rice. And then I went hunting. And that was that. Okay. So that's, <laughs> what, that's why the rifle. Yeah, yeah not, not to protect the crops. No, I was before it. I agree. You yes. weren't anticipating no. protecting the crops. No, no, it was right just to go out and harvest goats and pigs, which were plentiful. So that's um, so that was the way it was. I mean, there wasn't a lot to do. And when I was enlisted by um, some entrepreneurs, uh, I said, "Absolutely, sounds like fun to me," but uh, it wasn't. All fun. <laughs> That's brutal. brutal. I, I would imagine that. And, and how long did you stay in this live, in this living situation for? Before you said, okay, I'm, I'm a Mauian now. I don't need just this house. I'm here. Well, I think a lot of the old timers uh, made enough money to buy some land. Mm -hmm. You know, and um, then you could do it almost almost on a handshake. You know, you could give somebody a you know chunk of cash and. Um, promised to pay the rest and run an agreement of sale. So, and different times. And it happened in these days. Oh, absolutely not, you know. Um, 
yeah, I mean, ironically, it'd be easier for me to buy buy a piece of property than to actually rent one. I don't think I'd qualify. <laughs> and yet you own this beautiful <laughs> land. So look, look how, uh, yeah. how things ended up. So, Phil, the book, say, assuming, again, that the world becomes normal, the book takes off, what's, what's next? Do you sit here and sign autograph copies as the requests come in, or do you get out there and get active? Write, well, write another book? yeah, before the pandemic, I did do some book signings, and they were a lot of fun. I mean, I did one at a store in Kona called Kona Stories. It was actually um, publicized on NPR. So people called me from Oahu and said, hey, I heard you're on the down tonight, you know? So that was cool. The place was packed, standing room only. Nice. I brought a box of books, sold them all, uh, stayed like talking to people who had their own stories to share. Sure. So um, yeah, I went to a great party afterwards. Um, so, yeah, it, it's fun. I, I that's like, like a lifestyle right there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I look forward to doing that this summer, both in Oregon and uh, Colorado. And again, I mean, my mission isn't to make, I mean, it's nice to get a royalty check, which I do occasionally, but it's not about making money. Yeah, you're getting the story out there. You're living your life. Yeah, it's getting the story out there. And I always felt that somebody would write this story someday. And then um, I said, I kicked myself in the butt. I said, you got to do it. And after about 20,000 words, there was a certain momentum. I go, okay. I've spent hours and hours writing this much. Now I've got to finish. So I'll say for anybody contemplating writing a book, writing was the fun part. Mm -hmm. Getting it published, That's doing the proofs, yes. uh, proofreading again and again. I, I was just, it's funny you brought that up. I was just going to talk to you about that process. There's a lot of people out there that want to write books. Mm -hmm. What? It, it's, it's a daunting process, no doubt about it. Writing is hard enough, getting it out there is way harder. But the first time you got this in your hands, uh -huh. was it all worth it? Oh, yeah, absolutely, to see the finished product. Um, and um, I think one thing I learned is that when you, if you want to be a writer, no surprise, you have to write. That is to say, <clears throat> you have to take, a, if not an utterly disciplined approach, at least you have to invest a certain amount of hours every For me, I went and sat under a tree at Baldwin with a legal pad. Oh, you had a long hand? Yeah. No kidding. I, I, I hate computers. I hate looking at them. I hate the quality of light. I hate this motion. For me, it's just like I like to have it free. All right. And there's a kinetic process to actually writing. Difficult to go back and edit if you're writing that way, obviously. Well, Yes and no. Um, it actually became like a first edit because I look at all this scribble scrabble. <clears throat> I go, what was I trying to say? Make a little emendation. And then the hard part, putting it on the computer. Torture. Did you do that or did you have somebody do that for you? I did it. You did it. Okay. Yeah, because it was, again, it was, the, it was the first edit, really, transcribing from legal pad to yes that's it that's computer you can start editing right and, and then of course the endless proofreading um i went through this so many times <clears throat> line by line and i'm sure i purged it of every you type can't of catch it all yourself though can you i did not all right of course did not so when did you learn that what's the book was like this or did you have somebody else go through it for you first once it was published so dear readers <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. I'm offering you a prize if you pick out the uh, two typos. <laughs> Is that how many you have? How many are in there? Yes. Well, originally there are nine. Then when I saw it came out, oh my God. So we had to change the, you know, everything. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, I was working with some uh, a great publisher and uh, Inkwater Press out of Portland, Oregon. Great folks. Um, they've just gone out of business. And so now... So Inkwater is no longer. No longer. Like so many other companies. Now. Yeah, yes, so I'm looking for another publisher. All right. <laughs> All right. Very good. Or a film deal. Um, no, I, I want to say this while we're talking. Uh, I know Phil's anti-social media. He won't accept my friend request, so who knows if he'll accept yours. So I want to say this. You if, you're, if you're good looking, I will. Well, there you go. But you may find a publisher out there who's not very good looking. If you're a publisher, write to me. I'll make sure to get some messages. That's one to put that out there. Yeah, okay, right. And, um, you know, I suppose it's the holy grail of every struggling author to get a movie deal. So believe me, I think that the chances of that are about one in a thousand. This book lends itself to a, to a visual representation. However, it does. And I wrote it intentionally with a kind of cinematic velocity to it. Um, I find that even some of the best writers, and I guess to fill up the word count, have these sort of backstories that are irrelevant to the thrust of right. the narrative. And I just found it slows things down. So I actually pared this down to almost novella length. It's like 240 pages. Stuff I could have included, I, I left out intentionally. Maybe there'll be an second- uh, I was gonna ask, is there a sequel coming? Yeah, a sequel or a prequel or, or something. Uh, there are plenty more minutes. stories to tell, but I wanted it to move along. And I mean, basically all stories, all novels um, have a, a, an art. It's really simple. You have a protagonist mm -hmm. and there's a goal. Everything that comes in between that the protagonist has to overcome is part of the story and the fun. And in Shakespeare's day, if um, the protagonist was successful, it was a comedy. It didn't mean a yuck fest, it just usually was a happy ending. If, like Hamlet, <laughs> it ended not so happy, not so happy, then it was a tragedy. Mm -hmm. So there you have the, the, the mask of Jan. And, you know, comedy and tragedy. So I think that this errs on the side of the comedic, although there's some definitely maybe some sad moments in it. Uh, I would agree with you on both. It's very layered. All in all, I think people will feel good after reading it. Yeah, yeah. To, to really dumb it down, that's what I would, that's how Happy I would Happy ending. Happy ending. <laughs> So that was Philip J. Swatek, or as we know him here uh, on Maui in the neighborhood as Uncle Phil. Uh, man, I, as I mentioned, he's Phil is my neighbor, and I lucked out big time coming here to Maui and finding the uh, the place that I did to live for me and my beautiful pit bull babies. We're on this uh, heavily wooded property. It's like we're in the wilderness, uh, seven miles up from the ocean in an area called the upcountry. It's a four-acre property. There's two houses on the property. They're pretty far apart from one another. One is where I live with my pups. The other is, uh, is where Phil lives. It's a big, beautiful, hand-built wooden home. Uh, it's gorgeous inside, incredible views of the, the forest and the ocean. And, uh, you know, I've, I've come to know Phil well. 
Again, I feel very fortunate uh, being his neighbor. He's a very, very interesting guy. Uh, as we talked about in the podcast, Yale educated. And right away, I think that brings up a whole connotation of what somebody must be like. He's very intelligent, obviously, articulate, educated. Uh, but he's um, quintessential Maui, for sure. He's 70 years old, is in phenomenal shape, swims miles in the ocean each day. Uh, expert level martial artist, I know because I've seen it myself. Um, and every Saturday night in a uh, not-so-well-anymore-kept secret, uh, there is a live blues jam on Phil's uh, lanai. That's our word here in Hawaii for deck, for those who don't know. And it's a gathering of eclectic but expert local musicians. It's a bit of a party. It's a small one, but it's great. And I get to uh, walk the whole 100 yards or whatever it is to this really cool live blues party from my home in the Maui Forest every Saturday night, hosted and led by Phil. As I mentioned, very interesting guy. And then he writes this book, The Marijuanistas of Maui. And it's fascinating. It... um, I don't know. To me, it's evocative of what it must have been like in those days and, and what Maui in the world, uh, I think metaphorically, it talks about what the world has become. Uh, I recommend it highly. It's a really cool read. Uh, at present, if you're interested, hit me up. You guys all have my contact info on my platform, and I will facilitate your getting an autographed copy of Marijuanistas of Maui. But my friend and neighbor, Uncle Phil, Philip J. Swatek, thanks for listening, signing out from the upcountry of Maui for Rick Bassman, Talking Tough. We'll see you next time. Aloha. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody. Is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, now go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that.